Fourth Estate presents The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on a crisp walk through midwinter in its cold, glistening splendour, all the way up to Christmas Day. Along the path, there'll be recipes for some of your festive favourites and some new ideas too, to excite your palate in the cold months. You'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and a hundred essential recipes for midwinter, as well as some new content that we've recorded here at my home in North London. In this episode, I'll tell you a little more about my early family Christmases. We'll explore the mercifully unsweet crisp biscuit that is Lebkuchen, and I'll tell you my recipe for roast duck with pearl barley and red cabbage, as well as some passion fruit cream buns to bring a little sunshine to these cold, icy days. 6th of December, a tale of two polentas. Our family tree contains centuries of blacksmiths, gunsmiths, silversmiths and metal workers in what sometimes reads like an episode of Peaky Blinders. My grandmother worked in a dairy, delivering milk by horse and cart. A single mum, she brought up a daughter and four sons alone. My grandfather died aged 32. I knew her only towards the end of her life, when she was bad-tempered, contrary and exhausted. Visits to her house were memorable, if only for the tin bath hanging by the coal-fired kitchen range, and my puzzlement at being in a house without an indoor bathroom. I have no idea how she made ends meet, or how she gained a reputation for her lavish Christmas entertaining. My aunt, who died age 100, would tell stories about how she would look after the dairy while my grandmother would put her apron on and bake for Britain. Come to think of it, I never actually saw my gran without her apron, faded and worn thin from years of washing. She baked mostly sweet things, fruitcakes, pies, and enough lemon curd tarts to feed half the street. My aunt told of the smoking black kitchen range being covered in trays of little tarts and pastries. My guess is, short of money, she made them to sell to her neighbours. My grandmother insisted that Father Christmas existed. Even during one winter visit, when we sat by the fire and I whispered to her that I knew otherwise... She wanted me to go on believing. Fifty years on, I can see it was she who wanted to believe in him. Santa Claus is possibly the most complicated character in history. He is, by turns, Greek or Turkish, American, Dutch and British. He is pictured as a bishop, a goat and a fat guy in a red coat. The only thing we know for sure is that he is benevolent, the bringer of gifts to good children. And yes... Of course he exists. The figure we know as Father Christmas, a jolly, bearded gentleman in red, who distributes gifts to children on Christmas Eve, is derived from St Nicholas, a 4th century Middle Eastern bishop, and later saint, who gave gifts to the poor, in particular children. But the picture of a large, bearded character in a long cloak, who rides across the night sky, far more resembles Odin, that's Woden in Old English, the Norse god worshipped in pre-Christian times. Saint Nicholas, the patron saint of children and pawnbrokers, was a Greek Christian bishop 
who resided in Mira, once part of the Byzantine Empire, now in Turkey. In the Middle Ages, he was celebrated on December the 6th, when gifts would be given in his honour, an observance which was later moved to Christmas Eve. Today is the Feast of St Nicholas, a day barely recognised in Britain, but celebrated elsewhere, and nowhere more enthusiastically than in Holland. There is a painting of the feast in the Rijksmuseum, one of my favourite art galleries of all, by Jan Steen. Finished in 1668, it depicts a large family, the happiness of the children evident in their faces. Few paintings of the period depict anyone smiling, as they hold their presents, an orange, a gingerbread man, a doll dressed in white, the magnificent burnished bread resting against a laden table with fruit, coins and sweetmeats caught my eye. The traditional food of the feast is indeed mostly sweet. Rich, brioche-style yeast breads in the form of St Nicholas decorated with almonds and currants. Depending on where you are celebrating, you may be offered by Kusti Shlebicek, a Slovak bread in the form of a bishop, Slavki Kolash, a Serbian bread decorated with a cross and flowers, or cream cheese-filled bread purses, a delicious reminder of the coin purses St Nicholas would toss through the window. There may be a coffee cake, or perhaps Nikolaštifel, where the dough is shaped as a sweet-laden boot, decorated with poppy seeds, powdered sugar and licorice. American St Nicholas buns are decorated with candy canes and sprigs of pine. It should be noted that whether you know him as Santa Claus, St Nicholas, St Nick, Kris Kringle or Father Christmas, he will only deliver gifts to good children, by which he probably means kind, polite and well-behaved. It is worth remembering too that Krampus may also visit. Santa resides at the North Pole. The Royal Mail deals each year with thousands of letters to Father Christmas. Children who write to him need to get their letters in by December the 9th and must remember to include their name and address on a stamped envelope. Apparently, many forget to include their address. Most will get a reply from the Royal Mail Chief Elf, which must surely be the best job title on earth. His address, by the way, is Santa, Father Christmas, Santa's Grotto, Reindeerland, XM4, 5HQ. We don't really celebrate this day here, although we do find ourselves raising our glasses to the saintly Nicholas, bringer of gifts, an all-round good guy, as we tuck into grilled pork chops and deep, warming pools of cheese and spinach polenta. I should tell you about the polenta, because it's gone from being something I now feel I ate somewhat grudgingly to something whose silken comforts I cannot get enough of. Polenta is now a winter staple, Shay Nige, but it took me a long time to find its joy. A lunch cooked by Florence Knight in Soho opened my eyes to what I'd been missing. I had simply been making my polenta too thick. Too much grain, too little liquid. I'd been too sparing on the cream and butter and cheese. The more slovenly the texture, oozing lazily onto the plate, the more I like it. I now make two versions, one with the texture of potato puree, the other a little softer and more soupy. The choice, as always, is yours. 
be prepared to have a little extra cream and butter to hand, as grains vary and you may wish to add more. 7th of December. A cracker, a quacker and a Danish charm. Roast duck and the invariable ensuing fug of smoke is just the thing for a winter's night. In fact, there is no other time of year I eat it. The juices and the fat that comes from the bird are too full of promise to sit in the bottom of a roasting tin. By stuffing the bird with potatoes, breadcrumbs or grains, you can sponge up and exploit much of that goodness. Pearl barley, not the nuttier brown pot barley, makes a toothsome stuffing when seasoned with thyme and mushrooms and a dash of sherry. I often use mirin. The pale grains soak up much of the fat from the duck, swelling with flavour and goodness. It occurs to me, as I spoon the moist filling out onto the plates, that this might make a splendid Christmas dinner for two, with enough left over for duck and watercress sandwiches. While the bird is crisping nicely in the oven, I take another look at my Christmas list and wonder whether or not we actually need crackers. The atmosphere at a family Christmas dinner was once almost ruined because of my throwing a tantrum over being forced to wear a paper hat, a stupid, stupid paper hat, throughout the meal. I don't know why I made such a fuss, but I did. Crackers, those foil-decorated cardboard tubes filled with corny jokes, useless toys and paper hats, are pretty naff, really. They serve no real purpose, and if anything, sum up the sheer waste of Christmas. And yes, the paper hats within are embarrassing. And yet, when I secretly rather enjoy pulling a cracker, the daft mottos, the mild snap as if a cap has been fired from a toy gun, the pointless gift being fired across the room, are all daft things that used to annoy me about the season, but no longer do. The cracker has been with us since the 1840s. There is a reason it resembles a bonbon, a sweet wrapped in foil. The first commercial cracker was made by Tom Smith, the owner of a sweet company whose sugared almonds were sold in a twist of coloured paper. To increase sales at Christmas, he invented the idea of a giant version and in 1860 introduced a device that snapped when pulled, resembling the crack of twigs burning in the hearth. The idea was a success. The mottos and trinkets were added by his son, Walter, to distinguish Smith's crackers from any others. The company continues to this day, and crackers have become as much a part of the Christmas Day table as the flaming pudding. The snap, incidentally, is made by the involvement of a layer of silver fulminate, a mild explosive so fragile it can be set off by the smallest movement. It may be useful to know that Tom Smith's website has a minute-by-minute -minute countdown to Christmas, so you know, at any time of the year, how much longer you must wait to pull your cracker. And the paper hats? The idea dates back to Saturnalia, the Roman celebration held on December the 17th, when slaves were allowed to wear conical felt hats to the feast, at which they were waited on by their masters. But here's the real point. You can't pull your own cracker. You have to pick an aunt, a grandparent, anyone, to pull it with you. It's a bonding thing, which is why the Christmas table seems to come to life once the crackers come out. Though to this day, 
I still won't wear my paper hat. And now a recipe. Roast duck with pearl barley and red cabbage. Serves four. Pearl barley, 200 grams. Chestnut mushrooms, 300 grams. Olive oil, four tablespoons. Garlic, three cloves. Chopped rosemary, two tablespoons. Thyme leaves, three tablespoons. Mirin or dry sherry, four tablespoons. Finely grated zest of a lemon. A duck, oven ready, about 2.5 kilos. Red cabbage, 400 grams. Greens, such as cabbage or Brussels sprouts, 200 grams. Red wine vinegar, two tablespoons, and two tablespoons of red currant jelly. Rinse the pearl barley briefly, then cook in lightly salted boiling water for 30 minutes. Drain and set aside. And then set the oven to 220 degrees centigrade, gas mark seven. Cut the mushrooms into quarters. Warm the olive oil in a pan, then add the mushrooms and let them fry for 10 minutes or so until golden. Peel and thinly slice the garlic. Add to the pan and let it colour, then stir in the chopped rosemary leaves and the thyme. When everything has continued cooking for a couple of minutes, mix in the mirin or sherry and the lemon zest. Season lightly with salt and black pepper, then stir in the cooked pearl barley and remove from the heat. Place the duck in a roasting tin. Fill the chest cavity of the bird with the pearl barley stuffing. If there's too much, add it to the roasting tin. Roast in the preheated oven for 20 minutes, then lower the heat to 160 degrees centigrade, gas mark three, and cook for 80 to 90 minutes. If the skin appears to be browning too quickly, cover loosely with a piece of kitchen foil. Shred the red cabbage and the greens into strips about the width of a pencil, keeping any shredded tough stalk separate. Spoon about four tablespoonfuls of fat from the duck roasting tin into a deep saucepan. Place over a moderate heat, then add the shredded red and green cabbage stalks. Let them fry for five minutes, then add the shredded red cabbage leaves. When they're tender, stir in a little salt and the red wine vinegar. Then, when the vinegar has finished spitting and sizzling, add the shredded green leaves and the red currant jelly. Turn the cabbage over until it's glossy and coated with jelly. Carve the duck, spoon out the pearl barley stuffing and serve with the red cabbage. Eighth of December. Spice, crumbs and cream. There has been a golden tin by the coffee machine for some time now. Each year, I fill it with round Lebkuchen that I bring back from late autumn trips to Cologne, Oslo, Gothenburg or Vienna. The best I have ever had hail from Nuremberg. You can buy them in Britain, of course, but I like to hunt them out nearer their spiritual home. Soft, open-textured and spiced with mace and ginger, they are mercifully unsweet. Even those with an almost transparent crust of icing. The small, dark chocolate-covered ones are my favourite, despite their pesky layer of rice paper, like a macaroon. Texturally, Lebkuchen hangs between biscuit, cookie and cake. 
Some might argue that the disc of honey and spice is technically a cookie, because of its soft texture, or a cake, but only in so much as a Jaffa cake is legally a cake. It is, though, categorically a form of gingerbread, soft and chewy with nibs of almonds, and often a thin disc of rice paper on its base, often known as pfefferkuchen because of its spicy character. It also has notes of honey, marzipan, cinnamon and mace. The name is probably derived from honey cake. Honey has for centuries been considered to have healing qualities, despite the fact it's just sugar with good PR. And honey cakes were once worn as a talisman to ward off evil spirits. Lebkuchen have been made since the 13th century and are something we must thank Franconian monks for. There is a record of them being made in 1395 in Nuremberg and a legend that Emperor Friedrich III gave 4,000 of the gingerbreads away to children at a party in 1487, each bearing his portrait. The ingredients are honey, hazelnuts, almonds or walnuts, candied peel, aniseed, ground cloves, ginger, coriander, allspice and cardamom. The breads are decorated with whole skinned almonds, then baked until softly firm with a light, crisp outer crust. I buy them from Christmas markets, where they are sold as rounds, rectangles or even heart shapes. Decorated with coloured icing, messages, a souvenir from Nürnberger Christkindmarkt, whole nuts or dipped in chocolate. They are at their most charming when decorated as gingerbread houses, with snow icing dripping from the roof, but also come in discs the size of an old record, as logs covered with dark chocolate and as scarlet iced Christmas stockings, complete with a ribbon to hang from the tree. You can locate the site of a Pfefferkuchen stall in one of Nuremberg's Christmas markets just by sniffing the air. Little Hansel and Gretel houses, scented with cardamom and honey, they are as irresistible to me as a packet of sugared almonds. At least once a year, I make a pudding with Lebkuchen by crumbling the biscuits into softly whipped cream and leaving the spiced crumbs to soften and bleed into the cream. It is the easiest, most useful dessert in the world. I contrast the general creaminess with a layer of dark chocolate that sets as crisply as ice on a pond. 9th of December, the Christmas card. The e-card, the modern version of Henry Cole's 1843 invention, lacks everything the traditional paper card embodies. The shuffle of envelopes as they fall on the doormat, the quizzical analysis of the handwriting, the tugging of the tightly wedged card from its envelope and the delight on finding a greeting from someone you haven't seen for a while or whose writing you didn't recognise. The idea that the card has been chosen specially for you and has been handwritten by the sender brings with it a warmth of friendship that no electronic greeting could ever aspire to. That has been handwritten. In the days of texts, emails and tweets, that reads like something out of Dickens. If we are to send cards at all, they require more involvement than smugly pressing send, or worse, send all. The handwritten card says you care. The e-card says you don't. Cold, efficient, and a wee bit too businesslike. 
If you were going to send an electronic Christmas greeting, I'd rather you didn't, thank you. If you can't be asked to put pen to paper, then don't bother. The first Christmas card was commissioned by Sir Henry Cole, civil servant and inventor. He had a hand in the design of the Penny Black, from the illustrator John Colcott Horsley, a prude, who protested against the introduction of nude life models. The illustration featured a group of people raising their glasses to the recipient, surrounded by two vignettes of folk giving food and clothing to the poor. The batch of 2,000 cards was the beginning of the phenomenon that is only now starting to wane. The first cards went into mass production in the late 1800s, and within the next 20 years, now famous firms such as Hallmark and Raphael Tuck started producing cards in their millions. The idea of a handwritten card really took off during the First World War, when people wanted to send greetings to soldiers stationed away from home. The Christmas card has not stood still. The illustrations have gone through various stages, from glitter-coated village scenes with churches and snow to reproductions of paintings of the nativity. But the religious element was never the original intention. Only toasting your friends and loved ones, the early cards depicting fairies, flowers and paintings of children rather than the babe in the manger. The habit of sending cards to all and sundry has for the most part disappeared. During my teens, I would be commandeered in early December into writing all the family's cards and addressing the envelopes. I will remember the horror on my father's face the year I wrote them all with a biro instead of my usual fountain pen. I can only imagine what he would make of the e-card. We would send upwards of 200 to everyone from the grocer to every neighbour in the village. The charity card first became a phenomenon 30 years ago when a proportion of the profit from the sale of each card helped to fund a well-known charity. The now-famous UNICEF card, ahead of its time, was introduced in 1949, Oxfam's a few years later, and now almost every card that lands on my doormat is charity-based. I like guessing which charity each sender has chosen before I turn the card over. Then the occasional envelope arrives embellished with foil stickers. I have to admit to rather liking these. I rather wish I'd been in Germany in 2004, when the German post office gave away 20 million scented stickers to make your cards smell of everything from fir trees to gingerbread. Presumably, you could smell the post arriving as well as hear it. The handwritten card's days are numbered. The writing is not so much on the card as on the wall. Most of us receive fewer cards than we did the previous year, and the habit is leaning towards sending fewer but more expensive cards. Those I give tend to be brought individually rather than in packs, each one carefully considered as to whether it's right for its intended recipient. Cards now come decorated with everything from embroidery to jewels, bits of fabric, and even twigs and bits of lace. There are a few that I especially look forward to receiving. Greetings from friends who clearly enjoy choosing elaborately produced examples, literally works of art, and many of which are used throughout the year as bookmarks. My first Christmas card arrived yesterday, a trifle too early, I feel. It has spurred me into writing the few I actually send. There is no one day when I buy them all. I tend to know whom I'm buying for, and pick them up gradually over a few weeks, as and when I see something special.
I've been known to buy them as early as September, though if I'm honest, I usually end up losing them, only to have to buy a replacement. The original, perfect card usually turns up shortly after the event, when I'm having the post-festive tidy. I should add that my father's hurt, steely glower has stayed with me, and I write all my cards in fountain pen. A few notes. How you send your cards is your business, and I add the following notes as observations rather than as a guilt trip. It is a personal aid memoir rather than a decree. If you're unsure whether you should send someone a card, then may I suggest you don't. They'll only be as puzzled as you are. Don't surprise people you haven't communicated with for ages. They will only think you have some cards left over. Funny cards are rarely as amusing to the recipient as they are to the buyer. Refuse to buy any card covered with glitter, unless, of course, it is your intention to actually annoy your friends. If there is a verse, read it carefully to make sure it is appropriate. Never send a card with a verse. There are two formats of card, portrait and landscape. The latter rarely stays up for more than a day or two, then slowly flattens, pushing the other cards over. Remember that much recycled paper doesn't like fountain pen, acting more like blotting paper. Use a fibre tip. Never send your cards too early. It looks like you're getting them out of the way, which of course you are. It is better not to send a card than to send one that arrives in the flat days after Christmas. A lone card on the doormat on December the 28th tends to look somewhat forlorn. Check the last posting dates. They seem to get earlier every year, and some are rather surprising. The last date for economy surface mail to all non-European destinations, the Middle East and the Far East, is around September the 28th, which is something of a shock. For South Africa, Hong Kong and Singapore, the USA and Canada, the date is around October the 13th. For Western Europe, it's around November the 17th. If you are sending airmail, now known as International Standard, you will need to send cards to Africa and the Middle East by the first week of December. Greetings to Greece, Australia, New Zealand, the Czech Republic, Japan, the Caribbean and Italy can wait until the following week, but best get them in by the 10th. The last posting date for local cards to mainland Britain varies a little from year to year, depending on the day on which Christmas falls, but generally get second-class cards in by the 18th, first-class by the 20th. Never use the office franking machine. At best, it makes you look cheap. At worst, dishonest. It is worth remembering that cards can mean a lot to the elderly and those living alone. They are worth every moment of your time. Addressing cards is not a penance, and I'm fond of the sound of pen nib on paper. But I still feel a treat is called for, like passion fruit cream buns with lemon thyme. And now a recipe. Passion fruit cream buns with lemon thyme. Makes eight. For the buns, water, 125 mils. Butter, 50 grams. Strong flour, 75 grams. A pinch of salt and two beaten eggs. For the filling, double cream, 250 mils. Passion fruit or lemon curd, 
75 grams. And to finish, caster sugar, two tablespoons, lemon thyme leaves, one tablespoon, and 200 grams of white chocolate. Set the oven at 200 degrees centigrade, gas mark six. Line a baking sheet with baking parchment. Pour the water into a small saucepan, add the butter and let it melt, then add the flour and salt. Stir with a wooden spoon until you have a thick paste, then remove from the heat. Transfer the paste to the bowl of a food mixer and add the beaten eggs, a little at a time, beating at a fast pace with a flat paddle attachment. When you have a thick, creamy dough, place eight generously heaped tablespoonfuls of the mixture onto the baking sheet. Bake for approximately 25 minutes until crisp and well risen, then remove and lift onto a cooling rack. Make the filling. Whip the cream until it's approaching stiffness. It should just be able to hold its shape on a spoon. Stir the passion fruit or lemon curd gently into the cream. It isn't necessary to completely combine it, which might result in overmixing. Just a thread of lemon through the whipped cream is enough. Pierce a hole in the side or base of each puff and fill with the lemon cream. Put the sugar and thyme into a food processor and process until the sugar turns green and smells deeply of lemon. Break the chocolate into a small heat-proof bowl, balanced over a pan of simmering water, and leave it to melt. It will melt more smoothly if you leave it to become liquid without stirring. White chocolate tends to seize when stirred. Dip each bun into the chocolate, or spoon a little over the top of each. While the chocolate is still wet, scatter the lemon thyme sugar over the top. Wait until the chocolate is crisp before serving. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and 100 essential recipes for midwinter is available now in hardback, audio, and ebook, and published by Fourth Estate. Join me again in our next chapter as we delve further into the season and I share some more recipes and wintered stories. Mm-hmm.